You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Sugar Coated. Hello my radio friends, it's great to have your company today and I welcome you to the program. Just recently I attended the funeral of a friend I've known for about five years. Unfortunately he died a disappointed man who lost the will to live. The funeral was held in a mainline Protestant church. There I heard some things that did not gel with me. They were assumptions about the state of being my friend who had been dead for almost two weeks was in. Many of you probably may not have questioned what was said because you might have grown up with some unbiblical ideas as were expressed at the funeral. So what am I talking about? Put simply, according to the minister who gave the address, my friend is supposedly now up in heaven having gone to God. However, the minister who made that statement later read a poem which contradicted what he said earlier. I suspect that he, like many others, just hasn't thought the issue through properly nor checked what the Bible actually has to say. It is my opinion that what the minister said had more to do with a traditional view than with what should be his guidebook, the Bible. Just like poison can be coated in sweet-tasting icing to make it acceptable, so lies can be covered up in a layer that sounds like truth. And a strange thing I've noticed is that many people are quite content to remain in error and others aggressively uphold their erroneous doctrines in spite of Bible truth. My friend is not in heaven. He's dead. His life has gone from him. He has no thoughts, no praise for the God he loved, no pleasure. He is, as Jesus described, sleeping or unconscious. The concept that the mind, or as some say, the spirit or the soul, is separate from the body is a fallacy. It comes from ancient Greek philosophy and not from God's word. Whether or not the soul is interpreted as meaning the whole person or the spirit, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 makes a clear, unmistakable statement. It says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That statement is repeated in verse 20. It says, The soul who sins shall die. And of course, we, as we are told, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, and that's found in Romans 3.23. Again, we are told, the wages of sin is death, and that's from Romans 6.23. Back at creation, God provided a test of choice and allegiance. 
In the Garden of Eden, the home he provided for humanity's first parents, God put just one particular tree amongst all the others and said to Adam and Eve, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. So did God mean what he said? Did he mean that they would completely die? Or part of them would continue to live in another place, in another form? If he meant the latter option, then that means that man already has immortality. Because supposedly at death, mystically, Part of man would have to leave the body and go to either heaven or hell. Coupled with that idea is what supposedly happens to bad, unsaved people. They supposedly go to hell and there be tormented with fire for eternity. But, of course, there's a problem. How can someone feel pain if there's nobody to feel pain with? No, my friends... The doctrine of someone's soul going to heaven at death, so widely preached in many churches, is not supported by Scripture. It is poison. It is tradition wrapped in a sugar coating to make it appear plausible. Some say that it's comforting to know that a dead relative has gone to heaven. But is it? Why I why did I see so many tears at my friend's funeral? There should have been happiness and rejoicing that he was now supposedly in the hands of God enjoying paradise. Secondly, is it a comfort to think that one's dearly departed relative is enjoying looking down at this tired old planet, seeing his or her family suffering disease, and enduring hardship. In my opinion, the truth is much more comforting to know that a dear departed relative or friend is asleep in the grave awaiting the return of Jesus, the one who came to save them. Consider the words of the prophet Daniel, who wrote under inspiration of God in Daniel 12.2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel was here writing about the return of Jesus. Now, I realise that, that some people say that when Jesus comes, the soul will reunite with, with the body and all will be well. But I want to ask you a question. When someone awakes from sleep, how can you tell? Well, it's the mind, the spirit or the soul, if you like, that awakes. It is the conscious part that awakes or goes to sleep. So when Daniel wrote about the awakening, where did he say that those who awake were located? Well, they were in the ground. The dust of the earth, of course, not up in heaven. 
When Jesus died on the cross, was he completely dead? If not, then what Christians have been proclaiming for centuries is meaningless because if he was not dead, his sacrifice wasn't complete. But we know that Jesus was dead and had not gone to heaven because on Sunday morning after the resurrection, he told Mary not to touch him because, as he said himself, I'm not yet ascended to my father. And you can read that in John chapter 20 and verse 17. I've shared with you in an earlier program about when people will receive immortality. Check it out for yourself in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 54. The saved will receive immortality at the second coming of Jesus, not before. The teaching that the soul and the body reuniting at Jesus' second coming is false doctrine, false religious propaganda. Just one other important point before moving on to another sugar-coated religious belief. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus comforted his disciples because they were perplexed after Jesus told them that he was going away and they were not, at that stage, able to go with him. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, here is a very important point. If the souls of the dead are already in heaven, what is the purpose of Jesus returning to earth to take back the saved to heaven with him? This business about reuniting the soul and the body at that time is a cooked-up doctrine to make false doctrine sound plausible. It is a cloak to cover up a flawed initial premise. It's like a lie told to cover up another lie. Man is not given or immortality at birth, as the sugar-coated, satanic-inspired doctrine teaches. Immortality is only given when Jesus returns, and those who died and who accepted his sacrifice are raised to life again, but this time to eternal life. The wicked dead will not have eternal life by being, while being tortured in hell forever, either. They will eventually be raised to life in order to see what they missed out on and then they will experience what is described in Revelation 21.8 as the second death, where they, with Satan who caused all sin in the first place, will be annihilated in what the Bible describes as the lake of fire. And you can check that out from Revelation chapter 21.8. I find it difficult to understand why so many Protestant churches, where the Bible is readily available to be read and studied, support a doctrine that is wrong. 
Are those religious organisations afraid to face up to the fact that their immortality of the soul doctrine is inspired by the devil himself? Back at creation, when Satan disguised as a serpent tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying God, he told them if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would not die. God told them they would die. Satan said, no, you won't die. So who was right? My friend died and lies in a state of unconsciousness, not knowing anything. But, incredibly, some unsuspecting people believe my friend is in heaven, enjoying eternal bliss right now. You know, I prefer the straight truth to the sugar-coated poison that I heard at my friend's funeral. We're going to stop here and have a little break and go on straight afterwards. Sweet hour of prayer Sweet hour of prayer That calls me from A world of care And bids me at My Father's throne May call my wants And wishes known in seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy
here's one thing that really puzzles me. You know, I don't know why people can't be honest with the Holy Word of God and let it speak for itself, instead of them believing up conjured up ideas that the Bible does not support. I find it reprehensible that many ideas are taught to unsuspecting people as truth when it's not truth. Furthermore, it distresses me that so many people swallow the sugar-coated lies and do not take the effort to check out what the Bible says for themselves. Now for another sugar-coated poison pill. Many things are spoken from the pulpit in regard to conversion that are not true. People are led to think that by having faith and by repenting they can buy their way into heaven. There is danger in placing merit on faith. Faith is often presented as being our saviour. So what is faith? Well, faith is giving our heart and mind to God, accepting Christ as the only door to heaven, and then doing our part. Man must yoke up with Christ and learn his meekness and lowliness. But you know, there must be a power that comes from the outside of us. And while God in Christ must be the one to build the church, there must be a co-partnership with him. You see, being saved is through faith and not of faith. So this partnership, what does it entail? I'd like to suggest to you that after conversion there must be growth. That growth is sometimes called sanctification. Sanctification involves a purifying of the mind and character with obedience to the will of God. And if that doesn't happen, sanctification has not taken place. There are those who claim holiness of heart and yet do not have a saving and experiential knowledge of God or his law. To claim that it is no longer necessary to keep God's law because they've become followers of Christ is an anathema, a contradiction. Because if someone has been saved, there must be some indication that they are grateful for being saved. A genuine Christian will and must show that he or she wants to please the one who saved them. And how is that shown? Well, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's John fourteen fifteen. And just in case anyone wants to try to wriggle out of that by saying, oh, Jesus was only talking about loving God and our neighbours as ourselves, there are two verses that take what Jesus said to another level. The first is from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, which says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Then there is another statement in 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, which says, 
This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and keeping his commands. Then there's this summary, this is love for God to obey his commands. That last sentence is more than just a statement, it's a definition. The sugar-coated poison spread around in many churches is that at the cross the commandments of God, that is what we know as the moral law, the Ten Commandments, was done away with. If so, the moral guidelines supposedly have been removed. Therefore, man cannot be held accountable for his actions. In effect, man is accountable for his sins only up until the time of his conversion, but after that he's accountable no longer. Put another way, until the time of conversion a person is accountable to God's law, but after his conversion that doesn't apply anymore. Do you think that's right? That is baloney. Jesus said, I have kept my Father's commandments. You can read that in John 15:10. Jesus is our example. God has not given up his Son to a life of suffering and a shameful death to release man from obedience. God's government and his grace are inseparable. They go hand in hand. In many congregations, there are people who listen to popular discourses that do not satisfy the heart. The people get taught to make feeling their criterion without intelligent faith. The minister may profess to be very sincere, but instead gives the people false hope. Spiritual poison is often sugar-coated with a false doctrine of sanctification removing personal responsibility in the Christian life. But unfortunately many people swallowed that sugar-coated poison pill and are not aware that they have been given error instead of truth. People might make whatever excuse they please for not accepting and living by God's law, but no excuse will be accepted in the day of judgment. Good intentions cannot and do not take the place of obedience. And that's forcibly pointed out in the parable told by Jesus about the talents. You might remember that one servant was given five talents, another two, and the third one. The first two worked. They worked hard to bring about an increase and doubled their money to give to their master when he returned from his trip to a foreign country. The third servant buried the one talent given to him in the ground. There was no growth. When the day of accounting arrived, the third servant explained to his master that his intentions were sincere so he protected what was given to him, although there was no growth. His master, in reply, said, 
You wicked, lazy servant. And then commanded to throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can read that in Matthew chapter 25, verses 26 and 30. Sanctification is spiritual growth. As Christians, we are to grow in commitment to the Lord, to grow in our love for him, to grow in the knowledge of his word, to grow in our obedience, and to grow in service on his behalf. Good intentions and doing nothing are not acceptable. So, my friends, today I've pointed out some issues where people are being fed sugar-coated poison in some churches, where instead their ministers should be proclaiming truth from God's word. Maybe you are someone who's swallowed false doctrine. I certainly hope you will become a true follower of God and make up your mind to accept truth and only truth that finds its foundation in the Bible and not in traditional beliefs. Until next time then, this is Len wishing you clear discernment and God's blessings as you follow our dear Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I'm